Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 10, A Club, Not a Charity. Although the guinea pig club had to evolve into what it would become, as opposed to being planned out, it's not unexpected that some of its tenets were grafted from the personal views of the maestro. Dr. Archibald McIndoe, like everyone else, had his own worldview, and a part of that abhorred the idea that his men were charity cases. They had all just come short of giving their last full measure in defense of their country, and as such, deserved whatever they needed to rebuild their bodies and faces. But as the pilots started filling up Ward 3, and McIndoe's team of surgeons and support staff treated the men, McIndoe later reminisced, quote, As we worked, a persistent question nagged at my mind. When their bodies are whole again, can we also rebuild something of their lives? End quote. Technically, the guinea pig club is registered as an official war charity, but that's only for tax purposes. McIndoe certainly believed that the men deserved assistance after the war, but didn't want a handout for them. More than once, he was heard to say, quote, exhaust all sources before dealing with the matter as a charity, end quote. But the other side of the equation, as he saw it, was that the men should strive mightily to be useful members of a community. Anything less was a waste. Again, this was part of his worldview, and he couldn't see things any other way. Even when his mantra against alms pushed his former patients into occupations that would tax their physical abilities, especially as they grew older, he still believed it was better to try and fail, and then perhaps need charity, than to aim low and stick one of his men with a menial existence. As the men of the sty felt mostly gratitude and, on some level, probably worshipped the man who gave them a fighting chance at having a normal life, his creed became their creed. After all, he knew that many of them had joined the RAF to better themselves in the first place, besides their anger against German aggression. Well, McIndoe was going to personally see to it that a world war and a series of surgeries did not get in the way of any of that. However, this responsibility the club took on from its leader became only more challenging as the guinea pigs got older. The average person slows down with age, or their eyes don't work like they used to. But what does that mean when one only has a partially working eye to begin with? Perhaps, but not knowing it at the time, Prime Minister Winston Churchill encapsulated McIndoe's idea best when he said, in regards to the RAF Benevolent Fund, it was a, quote, part of the conscience of the British nation, unquote. Started in 1919, a year after the creation of the RAF, the RAF BF helps the pilots and their families, but has gone on to do so much more. In regards to the guinea pigs, the Burns Committee, a rather quaint name, was the official representative that worked on the airmen's behalf in dealing with the RAF BF. But whomever served on the Burns Committee over the years never confused the acceptance of financial help once they passed something on to the Benevolent Fund with charity. For those committee men, 
any help received in whatever way was always seen as a delayed acknowledgement of the airmen's sacrifice and service. But there was a big difference between the long-term assistance from the RAF-BF and what the guinea pig club did itself within its own walls, though with a significantly smaller pool of resources. And that distinction was created by another of McIndoe's maxims, quote, social disability is the greatest handicap, unquote. So, when setting up a guinea pig in a new trade or profession, the Benevolent Fund received the case, passed on by the Burns Committee. But, as the war was more and more in the country's past, sometimes a guinea pig, now out of uniform, but still carrying the scars of a fire, would get down in the way he was treated or because of reactions to his presence, and needed some cheering up. And no official committee would grant a sum of money for a week on the town or a series of drinking bouts that would bring the sour man back to life. The thinking on this type of recovery, of course a product of McIndoe's, Blackie, and Russell's, went something like this. A little pick-me-up in whatever form was preferable to a long series of sessions with a therapist in which the state would certainly pay for. Of course, all this was kept hush-hush. So, if you were not one of the main three non-patient guinea pigs, a committee member, or the recipient of the committee's direct and unconventional assistance, you would never know what's going on. This might not seem much compared to fighting the government over pensions or the RAF-BF's assistance in helping someone through school to be a teacher or surgeon, and yes, that happened. But for the ones who needed the help, a quick infuse of cash, a case of whiskey, a coat against the cold, a simple night out on the town, well, those men were equally grateful. But there wasn't always love and understanding waiting for a wayward guinea pig who was down on himself and didn't give life his all. The maestro had a tough side to his philosophy as well, and that also resonated with others and the Burns Committee. For one guinea pig in particular, who had been arrested three times for disorderly conduct, Blackie wrote, quote, We have spent an enormous amount of time and trouble over your resettlement, and it's most depressing to receive an unsatisfactory report on your work with whoever he was working with. The impression I gathered was that you are not just putting your back into your work, but I am told further that you are hoping to get a grant from the RAF-BF to start yourself in a grocery business. Let me say at once that so bad has our experience with you been in relation to business of any kind run by yourself that under no circumstances would I support this application, End quote. And a letter like this would shock the guinea pig back into behaving himself. Then, and only then, was concern allowed to be shown for the man. However, Blackie ended with, quote, pull your socks up, even if they are on tin legs, unquote. And this intimate level of help and assistance did not stop after the war, when the boss... Blackie, and Dr. Russell, went on to busy professional and personal lives. The three men discovered very early after the war that, sometimes, the guinea pigs just needed to be physically around these very men who saved and cared for them 
at their darkest hour. Blackie certainly had men stay at his home for periods of time, but one of the best examples was when McIndoe took Johnny Hills into his home and hired him to drive his Rolls Royce. Just the nearness to McIndoe, for Johnny in his current state, helped immeasurably. Johnny just needed the strength and confidence that the maestro radiated. Johnny Hills wasn't a pilot and should not have been allowed entry. But when the club heard about how he got his burns, he was inducted without dissent. Corporal Hills was part of a ground crew and was in a hangar when it was hit by a bomb. Nearby petrol tanks caught fire and exploded. Not expecting any survivors, all were astonished when Hill's burned body was found at the bottom of the smoldering heap. But that was only the beginning of the guinea pigs club help to Hill's. Lying in bed for many weeks after his series of operations, Johnny voiced his fear of never finding any of his relations. Did he really have to go through the rest of his life like this with no one to help or sympathize? So, Dr. Russell Davies went to work. Playing Sherlock Holmes, he soon found out that Hill's father died during World War I and that his mother also died during the war, but under unclear circumstances. Johnny Hills thanked Davies for finding out. It was sad news, but it was now something he could put behind him. But Davies wasn't finished. He continued on with, Johnny not only had a sister but a twin sister at that, someone he could share his life with. After the war, Johnny wondered what to do with himself. McIndoe went into gear and was contacting the appropriate people in Hollywood to get Johnny as a job as a butler. But on his own initiative, Johnny investigated and set up a trip to Australia. So the guinea pig club helped out, unofficially, and waved goodbye and good luck. Johnny, embracing McIndoe's view of life, soon had a window cleaning and lawn mowing service established. It wasn't the life of a film producer or an oil magnate, as other guinea pigs went on to be, but Hills was making a living on his own merit. McIndoe was so proud. A few years later, Hills wrote a letter to the three men about his life, his wife, and his children. He also filled them in on another child he was adopting, so that the child wouldn't end up in an institution. A true guinea pig. However, his letter ended with his worry over Jack Willsheart, another guinea pig who went down under after the war. Jack was married and had three kids, but as his old leg wound was acting up, his wife was forced to get a job. Could the club do anything for him? Maybe get his pension, he was receiving 40% at the time, raised a bit. Blackie, who was reading the letter, handed it over to Russell and said, Yours. Can do? The reply came back immediately. Sure. Another guinea pig was helped. Over the years, the guinea pigs would gather annually for their lost weekend parties and catch up with who was where and doing what. But through it all, Remembered and those memories drowned out by alcohol, the men would never reminisce about what brought them to the sty. Going through it once was enough. Talking about it was verboten. They would, however, go on and on about the lighter moments at Ward 3, 
like the time certain guinea pigs tried to throw Sister Mealy into the nearby pond, or who won the most wheelchair races as the injured invalids rolled down a steep hill that ended at the hospital wall. But dangerous events were not done with all of the guinea pigs after the war. Guinea pig Jack Mann moved to Beirut to live and work. In 1946, Mann joined Lebanon's Middle East Airlines. It was much calmer than being a Spitfire pilot during the Battle of Britain. Later, he became the airline's chief pilot. And in 1960, he retired and stayed in Beirut to open an English-style pub. But on May 12, 1989, Mann and others were kidnapped by Iranian-backed Shiite Muslim militants. He was held for two and a half years, being released on September 24, 1991. As he was brought home and landed on British soil, a Spitfire was overhead, doing a roll. During the war, Mann had been shot down six times, but always came back for more. He died in November of 1995. His wife, Sonny, wrote of his experience in her book, Yours to the end. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I hope you liked these episodes on the Guinea Pigs Club. Uh, I'm not quite done with them. I'm sure I'll find some other stuff because I've ordered other books, and I'll put it out there in time. But for now, I'm going to go back to the story of Krupp. Uh, It really is an amazing story, and I hope I tell it well and keep you interested. But the Krupps are going to go on to do amazing things and become interwoven with whatever government is um, running Germany at the time after the Franco-Prussian War. So the things that they do with the Nazis is absolutely amazing, so we'll get back to that. Um, I've also got a couple of books on what the Americans were doing in occupied France, um, especially like the American hospital, some of the doctors and things like that. So we're going to spend some time with Krupp and then check out the Americans in, uh, in Paris, France, 1940, after the Germans take over. So I will see you soon with membership episode 11 um, before I jump back into do the second part of the war in East Africa. Take care, everyone.